On this episode of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast, we will hear a talk from Brian Litfin of the Moody Bible Institute. This talk was given at the Center for Ancient Christian Studies event on September 14th, 2015, called Martyrdom in the Early Church, Reality and Fiction. The paper is titled, The Apocryphal Acts as Martyrdom Stories, Early Witnesses to a Robust Second Century Concept of Martyrdom. The title, as you can see on the screen, The Apocryphal Acts as Martyrdom Stories, and my subtitle is Early Witnesses to a Robust Second Century Concept of Martyrdom. So I hope you can see that what we're doing here is showing that this idea of the martyr is something that we, we find very early. Uh, it's not something that can only be said to crop up in the third century. Uh, as some uh, scholars are saying today. So that's what I want to look at, and I'm very appreciative uh, to the first two speakers who have sort of laid that foundation in the uh, intertestamental literature, in the case of the Maccabees, uh, in the New Testament, and uh, Ignatius of Antioch at the turn of the second century. So we'll be looking at the apocryphal acts, and I'll be defining what those are uh, and explaining how they're related to the phenomenon of early Christian martyrdom. So let me uh, begin the paper. Among the many recent trends in early Christian studies is the contention that the persecution and martyrdom of Christians was far less prevalent than we once believed. Scholars have brought attention to the relative scarcity of reliable texts that can document the existence of martyrdom prior to the Decian persecution, Emperor Decius, which began in 250 AD. Even the few pre-Decian texts that we thought we had are now being moved forward as products of a later time, making it seem as if virtually no second century martyrdoms ever occurred, or when on rare occasions they did occur, they made such little impression on the contemporaneous church that eyewitnesses did not bother to record them. Only in the late third century, when interest in martyrs and their tombs and relics had begun to blossom, were the earlier martyrs now given a backstory suitable for more enthusiastic times. Often, if not always, the current trend is to see the martyr stories as finely crafted literary presentations of a rhetorical agenda that had little to do with actual historical events, events that are now unknowable since these later authors were shaping narratives rather than presenting facts. Apparently, the one agenda the early Christians cannot have had was to record for posterity an accurate account of very important events that actually took place. But was the second century, or maybe even the whole pre-Decian era, truly devoid of martyrdoms? No one would argue the point quite like that. What is being said is that these occasional martyrdoms are essentially unknowable in their own historical moments. The scholarship of early Christian martyrdom has typically defined a relatively small corpus of historically reliable second century texts, perhaps numbering only five or six. And it, it is these texts which are now being inched, if not shoved, toward a later time. Dr. Candida Moss of Notre Dame University has been an especially prominent advocate of this view, gaining notice not only in the more prosaic publications of academia, but also in a bestseller from HarperCollins with the provocative title, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom, published in 2013. 
if the presumed authentic texts actually come from up to a century after their ostensible dates, we truly would be robbed of much insight into second century martyrdom. All we would have to do is reinterpret a few other writings, basically the ones that we were just discussing here, and we would be left with the impression that martyrdom did not feature very prominently, if at all, in the ancient church until the time of Decius in the third century. Interestingly, however, a significant body of literature is often marginalized in this discussion, the so-called apocryphal acts of the apostles, most of which conclude with an apostolic martyrdom. Now, I am not suggesting modern scholars are unaware of these texts or never discuss them, but only that the received corpus of authentic martyrdom accounts has typically chosen to exclude them. For example, the very fine historian of antiquity, Timothy Barnes, helpfully catalogs various collections of martyr acts, and then, never one to shy away from giving his own view, provides the list that he himself considers most authentic. In all of these different listings, including the well-known English edition from Herbert Lucerillo, the apocryphal acts are conspicuously absent. Now, there are modern historiographical reasons for this, a matter I hope to explain in my address tomorrow. For now, I only wish to point out that these apocryphal texts really should be factored into any discussion of the prevalence of martyrdom in the second century. So, what are the apocryphal acts? The term acts refers back to the canonical acts of the apostles in the New Testament, a text which appears to have served as a precedent for the apocryphal acts. The term apocrypha here should not call to mind the deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament included in Roman Catholic Bibles. Instead, the nuance of apocrypha is that these post-New Testament works were hidden or withdrawn, tucked away in a cupboard because some of their content was deemed quasi-gnostic or heretical. Yet, because other parts of these texts were so heroic, even downright thrilling in their depictions of the apostles, early Christians of all types developed a taste for them, and so they survived here and there in numerous manuscripts and multiple languages, in part or in whole, even though the church hierarchy eventually tried to suppress them. There are many of these texts which recount the lives and legends of the apostles, but the bulk of them come from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. Five of them, however, are believed to come from an earlier time, and eventually they were gathered together in a single corpus by the Manichaeans. Yet the original provenance of these five documents was not necessarily from sectarian groups. The texts inhabited, as I just suggested, a kind of gray area in which they were beloved in orthodox and heretical circles alike. Most scholars now categorize them in the general orbit of Greco-Roman fiction novels, since they bear many similarities to that genre, such as adventurous travel and escapades on the part of the apostles, damsels in distress, confrontation with colossal villains, miracles and other supernatural plot points, and a heavy dose of romantic or sexual intrigue bordering on eroticism, which actually brings to mind that I think most of those elements are in the fiction trilogy that I wrote that Coleman just mentioned. So, I mean, I guess there's some sense in which ancient fiction or modern fiction is, is there's sort of some timeless elements that one includes in such things. Interesting comparison. In any case, my current remarks are not the place to embark on a thorough examination of all five early apocryphal acts of the apostles. 
Instead, I will now mention some specific martyrological implications in three of these texts, the Acts of Peter, Paul, and Andrew. I'll omit John because he's not said to die a martyr's death. And I will also exclude Thomas because though he is attested as a martyr, uh, his acts most likely derive from the early third century. But Peter, Paul, and Andrew are widely considered to be the earliest of the apocryphal acts stemming from the second half of the second century and perhaps even earlier in oral form. So they thus illustrate a very primitive understanding of martyrdom. After briefly looking at these texts, I will draw some conclusions uh, from, from our investigation. The Acts of Peter, like all the apocryphal acts, should not be viewed as a single text composed at a specific time and place. It is better to speak of a literary trajectory in which oral folklore, written narratives, and a variety of overlapping textual units from multiple genres get entangled or interwoven around a central character such as Peter. Due to this complex literary history, there are several surviving versions of the Petrine Acts. The primary one is a 6th or 7th century Latin manuscript that is widely understood to represent a 2nd century Greek original. We can give a date of around 190 AD as a reasonable estimate for its original composition from existing materials. Now, interestingly, the field of archaeology provides a corroboration of the early church's veneration of Peter as a martyr in the late 2nd century. Modern excavations deep beneath the floor of today's St. Peter's Basilica uncovered what is universally recognized to be a grave marker believed by the ancients to have belonged to Peter. The flood of scholarly literature about the Vatican necropolis is, is overwhelming. But one thing that is not in debate is that a small structure consisting of two slender columns, one of which is still in place to this day, and I've seen it myself, two columns covered by a marble canopy marked a niche in a red wall which identified a specific first century grave in a Roman cemetery. This canopy construction can be conclusively dated by stamps in the underground drain tiles to the year 160 at the latest. That this structure represented more to the early Christians than simply a grave marker is clear from the name they gave it. Around 200 AD, a Roman presbyter named Caius was bragging to an opponent about the imminent apostolic tombs of Peter and Paul in the capital city. Caius exclaims, but I can point out the trophies of the apostles, for if you will go to the Vatican or the Ostian Way, you will find the trophies of those who founded this church. The trophy situated on the Vatican Hill is the canopy structure uncovered by modern archaeologists directly beneath the altar, the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica. Many meters below is this structure. The fact that Caius called it a trophy proves that it was viewed as a martyr's monument. Greek tropion is not a word from a funerary context, but a military one. That is, it doesn't normally indicate a tomb, but a monument for victory in war, such as when the enemy's spoils are put on display. It is clear that this canopy over Peter's supposed grave was a celebration of his victorious martyrdom. Now, it might be objected that if Peter died in the mid-60s AD, but the trophy of Caius was only erected in 160, nearly a century would have elapsed between the apostle's death and the physical proof of it. 
Candida Moss interprets this time gap as evidence that the acts of Peter is historically unreliable. The fact of the matter is, Dr. Moss says, we simply don't know how any of the apostles died, much less whether they were martyred. But aside from the fact that Acts 12.2 explicitly states that James, the brother of John, was martyred by Herod Agrippa, I think we can actually be a little more confident about Peter as well, even though his death is not recorded in Scripture. It is true that we do not know with absolute certainty what happened to him, but the evidence here is better than it is being given credit for. When we realize there was a monument over the supposed tomb of Peter by 160 AD and possibly up to 20 years earlier, we are only one generation removed from an eyewitness of Peter's public execution. Let, let me use a personal example. When I was a child, I lived in a little house in Oxford, England, which was a few doors down from J.R.R. Tolkien's home. The year was 1981. Now let us imagine that, Lord willing, when I'm in my 70s in the year 2041, I might take my teenaged grandkids to see that place where I lived near a famous author's home. If my grandchildren then live 40 more years, they could quite reliably point out my house and or Tolkien's house in the year 2081, a full century after the time when I lived there. So too in the Roman Empire, a young eyewitness of Peter's interment, his burial, could have in his old age taken youthful Christians to the site of Peter's grave. Youth who would grow up to supervise the erection of a memorial structure at that very spot. I'm not saying I know that this happened, only that it is plausible since the math easily works out. The point of all this argumentation is to prove that when we come to the martyrdom sequence in the Acts of Peter, we come to a document that fits well with what we know about late second century Christianity. And what do we find when we look at the actual narrative? Omitting many of its interesting literary characteristics and focusing exclusively on martyrological themes, we find Peter in direct confrontation with Emperor Nero and his aristocratic henchmen, Albinus and Agrippa. These men are angry because Peter's Christian message caused their wives or lovers to stop sleeping with them. Peter learns the men wish to kill him, so he flees to Rome, or he flees from Rome, only to meet the risen Christ on the way out of town. From this encounter, Peter discerns he is supposed to live out Christ's crucifixion in his own body. So, resigned to the will of God, he returns to the city. He is arrested in order to be killed on charges of blasphemy against the state gods. Though the people of Rome protest, Peter meekly accepts his fate, recognizing Agrippa is the servant of an evil father, probably the devil. Peter then requests to be crucified upside down. Maybe you've heard of that. Not, though, for the humble reason of being unworthy of his master, which is a pious elaboration that doesn't show up until the 4th century, but in this text, rather, so that he can proceed to give a long-winded speech uh, about the inversion of the cosmos as he's there upside down on the cross. Upon his death, a rich convert named Marcellus takes down Peter's body and lays it in an expensive tomb with lavish care. But Peter returns from the dead to rebuke this behavior, since caring for a physical body is pointless for one who is truly alive. When Emperor Nero learns of Peter's death, he is outraged, for he wanted to torment Peter longer and eradicate the Christians. 
Suddenly, the risen Peter appears to Nero and warns the terrified emperor to quit harassing the church, which rescues the believers from further persecution. Now they can thrive and grow in peace. This is the second century martyrdom story in the Acts of Peter. Now, turning to the Acts of Paul, our second text here, we find a very similar type of narrative. Like Peter, Paul's mortal enemy is Nero. The story conveys a clear motif of two empires at war with one another. Mimicking the biblical account of Eutychus in Acts 20, the Acts of Paul describes how Nero's cupbearer, Patroclus, falls from a high window while listening to Paul's preaching. I guess Paul just everywhere he went had such boring preaching that people fell down dead everywhere. I feel like I would have been raptly listening to Paul's preaching myself, I think. But in any case, it's, it's a similar story to Eutychus. Uh, Patroclus falls and dies, but he is raised by the apostle. Nero is grieved to learn of the death until he's informed that Patroclus has returned alive. Shaken by this development, Nero demands an explanation from his cupbearer, and Patroclus confesses his allegiance to Christ. The emperor interprets this in military terms, as if Patroclus has sworn himself to a new lord and commander whose kingdom will soon defeat all others. Now enraged, Nero tortures and imprisons Patroclus and some other soldiers of Christ, then issues an edict to seek out any followers of this new enemy king. The imperial roundup nets Paul, the commander-in-chief, who declares his intent to enlist numerous soldiers from Nero's realm in Christ's cause. The emperor orders the traitor decapitated and many other Christians burned. Nevertheless, Paul shares the gospel with the city prefect, Longus, and a centurion named Kestis, both of whom become interested in the true faith. After moving to a different location, Paul prays in Hebrew and meekly offers his neck to the sword. Holy milk, whatever that was, some kind of milk, spurts from his severed head as he dies. But then, just as happened with Peter, the living Paul appears to Emperor Nero and terrifies him with a stern warning of divine judgment, which ensures the end of his wicked persecution of the church. Next, Paul appears at his own tomb, Telongus and Kestis. These men now believe unto salvation and are baptized by the biblical figures Titus and Luke, who were praying at the tomb alongside the apparition of Paul. In this way, we see that not even Paul's death can prevent the advance of, the, of Christ's kingdom, nor halt the steady spread of the gospel. Now, scholars who study the apocryphal Acts typically date this one to the late 2nd century as well. We know that a version of the Acts, the Acts of Paul, was circulating in Africa by around 200 AD because Tertullian of Carthage mentions it. He claims it was written by a presbyter in Asia Minor, which means it must have been compiled some years earlier in order to have had time to travel all the way across the sea to Africa. Thus, this version of the Acts of Paul indubitably witnesses to a full-fledged concept of martyrdom by about, say, 180 A.D. And as with the Apostle Peter, the existence of a late 2nd century Pauline cult is archaeologically confirmed by the trophy that Caius said was placed on the Ostian Way. Uh, the, which is the road down to Ostia, which was Rome's port. Namely, some sort of victory monument that this Roman presbyter, Caius, uh, knew to have been erected at Paul's presumed tomb. We do not know 
exactly what this structure may have looked like, for it has not been excavated, but has remained hidden since the 4th century beneath the altar of the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. Yet Caius knew something was out there on the Ostian Way, outside the city walls, and so did Emperor Constantine more than a century later when he built a little chapel on the site. Then in 384, Emperor Theodosius and some others erected a grand basilica on the exact same spot where it stayed intact until it burned out in 1823, which is, you know, 1823 is relatively recent. That church was there intact and in place. As anyone who visits the current church can easily see, the one architectural element that survived the fire is a triumphal arch which claims the building is sanctified by the body of Paul. The discovery of a 5th century inscription reading to Paul, apostle and martyr, confirms the same ancient belief that Paul was buried there. Pope Benedict XVI even claimed in 2009 that Vatican archaeologists had drilled into the sarcophagus beneath the altar and had discovered human bones that might actually belong to the Apostle Paul. I mean, I, I think that's kind of cool. I mean, I don't usually pray to bones of Catholic shrines, but I might be tempted to try it there, since it's maybe Paul. Not, not really, but uh, if I ever did, it'd probably be at Paul's shrine. In any case, it, it is interesting to think that, um, that we, we may know where the bone, the actual remains of Paul are. Well, okay, so um, whether or not this is true, we can at least very see very clearly that from the second century until the present day, a specific location was venerated as the site of the Apostle Paul's tomb and Victory Monument. This tells us that at the same time the Acts of Paul and of Peter were, being, were verbally describing apostolic martyrdoms, the early Christians were also building physical structures to commemorate their founders' noble deaths. It is apparent then from two different types of evidence that the concept of the martyr was already quite robust in the mid to late second century. Now, in the interest of time, the Acts of Andrew will be discussed only briefly, and then some concluding observations about all of these writings will be offered. Again, scholars typically date the Andrian Acts to the late second century. The text has not survived in its original form, but is available only in a Latin epitome, and in Greek, Coptic, and Armenian fragments. The storyline betrays a strongly Gnostic orientation that caused Eusebius, the church historian, to reject it as altogether wicked and impious. Yet, along with its dubious theological outlook, we find a strong emphasis on Andrew's heroic martyrdom. According to the narrative, at least in one attempt to reconstruct it, though the details do vary, uh, Andrew makes his way to Petras in Greece, where, after many escapades, he finds himself persecuted. Once more, the persecutor is an instrument of imperial Rome. The wicked proconsul, an earthly personification of the devil, Agiates, whose wife has separated from him due to Andrew's preaching. After Andrew is scourged, he is ordered to be hung on a cross to die slowly. Yet his demeanor has been so winsome that the populace is outraged at Agiates, but to no avail. Arriving at the seaside place of execution, Andrew hails the cross as a victory monument, then goes willingly to it like a lamb. While hanging there, he smiles and rejoices 
that those who belong to Jesus cannot be truly punished. So noble are Andrew's words from the cross in a sermon lasting three days. He gives a three-day sermon from, from the cross that a crowd of 2,000 people rush to Agiates to rebuke him for his unjust judgment. Agiates is forced to acquiesce to the mob's wishes by promising to release the condemned man, but Andrew refuses such mercy, for he wishes to go and be with Christ rather than stay with such a hideous evildoer on earth. Just when he is about to be let down from the cross, he begs Jesus to take him to heaven instead. As Andrew breathes his last, the Christians weep. Then Agiatis' wife buries the martyr nobly and continues to abstain from conjugal relations. That's actually a, a theme in all of these texts. Is, it's a different topic, really, but uh, the celibacy within marriage is, is sort of a recurring theme there. Uh, so she does that as well, and uh, Agiates hurls himself from a high place to his death. He is left with no offspring, and no one will even claim the inheritance of this despised, indeed devilish, imperial politician. So as we conclude our observations, what insights can we take away about the phenomenon of martyrdom in the second century? Clearly, it was an important concept, the stuff of which heroic narratives were composed. These stories were wildly popular and traveled all over the empire among many people who self-identified as followers of Jesus. In all of them, we discover the Christians to be very aware of themselves as locked in a fundamental opposition to the emperor and his judicial representatives. The value system of Christianity runs counter to that of Rome, and imperial leaders embody the devil's work. Yet, at the same time, a few pious individuals, often high-ranking, are always being drawn toward the true faith. Eventually, the time comes when the martyr must take his stand for God and Christ, imitating Jesus, his true Lord, by embracing death with the spirit of glad willingness and humility. Interestingly, what we do not find in the apostolic martyrdoms is a theme so prevalent in Polycarp, Perpetua, and Lyon and Vienne, the martyrs' scornful repudiation of a bloodthirsty mob. Rather, in the apostolic text, the populace is positively inclined toward Christianity, while it is only the demonic government that pers persecutes it. Yet, in both sets of documents, the martyr's death restores peace and tolerance to the Christians. Furthermore, the apocryphal acts share in common with the traditional martyr acts a concern to close out the story with proof of the martyr's respectable burial in a specific place where funerary religious devotion and even miracles can occur. Therefore, in light of all of these considerations, I propose that the passion stories in the apocryphal acts ought to assume a more prominent place in the study of early Christian martyrdom. When that happens, we will find that we have every reason to believe the small corpus of second or early third century martyr acts are uh, conventionally treated as authentic are, in fact, properly situated in that historical milieu. Their content is corroborated by what we find in the contemporaneous apocryphal acts. The concept of the Christian martyr was robust from an early stage, and while martyrdom itself was relatively rare, an awareness of its looming possibility within a climate of imperial hostility appears to have permeated the ancient church, affecting not only its literature but its architecture, though by no means was every believer called upon to shed blood for Christ. Nonetheless, depending on definitions, 
one could certainly make the case that from the very beginning, the early Christians must often have felt themselves to be living in an age of persecution. Thank you.